0: Can anybody tell me who this is? Now, we had one smart man this morning. His name was Duncan Dean, and he'd been doing his homework. But can anybody else who isn't Duncan Dean tell me? Just raise your hand if you're familiar with this face. Oh, it's quite a few of you, actually. Duncan, you don't get get points twice. This, for those of you who don't know it, is... Mary Kondo, I think I've said that right. I did get some, some help this morning. Mary Kondo, that's what I'm going with. And if you don't know who she is, she is the pioneer, one of the pioneers, of one of the latest crazes. And that would be, you can describe it in different ways, but minimalism, uh, living a simple life, you might say decluttering. Marie Kondo is, is the person people are going to at the moment. She is 34 years of age, which makes her younger than me, just. She has sold millions of books in, and had her books translated into a variety of different languages. And in 2015, so this has been going a little while, she was described by Time magazine as one of the mo- 100 most influential people in the world. And uh, here she is. Here's Mary doing what she does best: decluttering, folding things up. And there's an, there's an eight-week, there's an eight, sorry, stage, not eight-week. Doesn't take that long. There's an eight-step process she can lead you through, and the purpose of this process is to lead you into greater simplicity. And ultimately, she wants to enable you to live a life that's coloured with, that's filled with, a greater degree of joy. She's a brand. She's obviously a remarkable person. I mean, she is a force. I'd love to meet her. I think it'd be absolutely fascinating. And she is somebody who people are listening to. And she carries, she's uh, an example of a a wider social, cultural movement towards simplicity, towards greater simplicity. And I guess even just reflecting on her and And what she's about and the role that she and others have have and are having in our culture just made me think, why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing this happening? Why is decluttering? Why is minimalism? Why is simplicity becoming something that people, not just sort of niche people who like Swedish furniture, but people who write in the the core of the cultural mainstream, why are those sorts of people? Getting, people getting more and more. It's, Why, ladies and gentlemen, does Duncan Dean know about this? <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the answer to that is that what Marie Kondo <laughs> is doing is, is to, it's a recognition of, a, of an inevitable pendulum swim, swing. A pendulum swing away from consumerism away from a world that we've all been inhabiting where we're just collecting more and more and more and more stuff that none of us need. And we have been sucked in by a narrative that says, you are not who you're supposed to be unless you're consuming stuff. And that frame of reference, that Way of seeing the world, that worldview, if you like, colors everything that we do and everything that we are. The truth is that our society wants us to answer the biggest questions that we can ask. Questions of identity, that is, who are we? And questions of purpose, that is, what are we here for? Through the prism of consumerism. Who are we? We are consumers. What are we here for too? Consume. And it's so basic to our understanding of our world that we can't even see it. Like any worldview, it's the it's, it's the glasses that you're seeing the world through. You don't even know you're wearing them. If you ever, maybe you have a parent, right? And they're like, Where are my glasses? And you're like, Dad, you're wearing them. It's that's what this is like. It's so obvious. It's so, it's so much a part of who we are. Colors everything. It colors our experiences. We feel that there is no end to the experiences we long to experience in our life. We just want to consume experience after experience. How many have heard of? How many you've heard of or got a bucket list? <laughs> right? The bucket list is the list of experiences that unless I experience these things before I die, I would just I wouldn't I wouldn't have lived a full life my understanding of myself, is that I'm defined, I'm described by my ability to consume experiences. I think this is what binging on TV is now really about. It's consumption. I'm not happy just tasting. I want to consume a whole box set in an evening. <laughs> Folks, what was impossible in the days of VHS, <laughs> in which I grew up, Is now, I don't know why I do a Northern accent when I. Is now possible, and I can consume what it took months to produce in a single evening. What about relationships? Don't we take this same attitude into our relationships? what's the best outcome for me going to be in this relationship? And if I feel like I'm not getting out of it what previously I was, then I'll just move on and choose another one. Just consume another relationship. Consume another person in the process. We are consumers. Our world is set us up to consume. We can look at God in this way also. And what I want to say to you this evening is consumption is not a proper identity for a human Andrew Marr and, and it impoverishes the church and it impoverishes our society listen to this from Andrew Marr consumerism has shouldered aside other ways of understanding the world real political visions I, I could give you a whole evening on that by the way organized religion a pulsing sense of national identity do you not feel this That our political vision, you see this, there there is no single unifying political vision at the moment. Nobody's got a vision that's compelling in any direction. And so what are we finding? Our parliament's completely locked with nobody able to lead. Why? Because we as a nation have been living not for a political vision, but just for consumption. Consumerism shouldered aside a real political vision. It shouldered aside organized religion. And it shouldered aside a pulsing sense of national identity. Who are we? Who are we as British people? Okay, throw a few words around. We're tolerant. Whatever that means. (laughs) Ultimately, our temples are our shopping malls. What evidence have I got for this? Well, have you got a loft? Have your parents got a loft? Have you got a garage? If you have a guarantee, it's filled with stuff that you've not used for years. Our lives are more cluttered than they've ever been before. We've got lofts and garages full of stuff we don't use or need. And you know, there are charity shops that are no longer receiving donations. Partly that's a result of Marie Kondo, but the larger piece, it's just a part of how much stuff we have. Charity shops can't get rid of stuff quickly enough. But our cluttered garages are a metaphor for our cluttered souls. We've got all this stuff. We live in a time of material prosperity unlike any other time in history. And yet we're more anxious than we've ever been. So, if consumer is not a proper identity, how do we find a better one? I want to suggest two things. Firstly, we need an approach to a better life. And I want to suggest tonight that the proper approach to a better life is simplicity. That by simplifying as Mary Kondo is teaching people to do, we can find a way to a better life. We need an approach, and secondly, we need a guide. And I'm suggesting we can do even better than Mary Kondo. She's a good place to start. But we have Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we pick up the story. And I might just get my Bible at this point. Just uh, ten minutes in. Reaches for the Bible. There we go. We have Jesus as our guide. And if you missed last week, you, you, you will have missed us beginning this journey with Jesus through the wilderness. And we said that the wilderness typically for God's people is a place of purification and it's a place of preparation. It's where God's people learn how to be God's people. And for Jesus, even for Jesus, it is a place of preparation. It's a place where his own relationship with God, his Father, was being worked on. Now he had this eternal and perfect union with the Father and yet, even in the wilderness, there was stuff happening. I believe there was revelation. And again, this isn't from the words of the text necessarily, but I believe just in that time, it was God speaking to him in a, in an, a decluttered way. It was in a place where he could just hear his father's voice, where the distractions of the world, uh, he was removed from them. I believe it was a place where Jesus could address the basic questions of, of his own life. The questions of identity, the questions of who he was. And the questions of mission or his purpose, what he was here for, what his mission was gonna look like. I reckon it was in the wilderness that he knew for the first time that he was gonna be the kind of Messiah who would suffer. Again, I can't prove that, but I feel like it was in the wilderness that God just gave him specific insight into who he was gonna be and how he was gonna go about it. And it's in the midst of that Place, that wilderness journey that Jesus has with God, that Satan comes along and begins to tempt him, and every temptation we're going to look at them one by one over the next three weeks. every temptation is designed to knock Jesus off, course. Every temptation is designed as an attack against His identity, as an attack against his mission and as attack and, against, and, and His purpose. What do we read? Luke 4, verses 3 to 4. The devil said to him, well, why don't I do from verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now at the first, we've just got to say, this seems not like a temptation, but perhaps like a reasonable offer. Jesus is so hungry, he's famished. I don't know how many of you have fasted for 40 days. I've not been there, folks. I'm willing to come clean. I've not done the 40 day thing. I'm significantly belief that in terms of days fasted. You know, 40 minutes fasting for me sometimes feels like a stretch. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus is rightly famished. Satan comes and says, Jesus, why don't we, let's sit down, let's share a meal together. I've got some stones here. You're the son of God. Why don't you make some bread? It seems fairly reasonable to start with. And yet, actually, we begin to dig beneath the surface. There's a test right at the heart of this, and it's contained within a single word, and the word is if, if you are the Son of God. Tell this stone to become bread, if you are the Son of God. Now, those of you who've read the story of Luke's gospel, you already know that what's happened before Jesus goes into the wilderness is he's had a powerful mountaintop, so the phrase goes, experience of God at baptism. He has Entered the waters of baptism, as many of you are going to do on Easter Sunday. The presence and power of God is manifestly present so much that everybody recognizes. Jesus has been the center of attention. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him as a dove. And the voice of God has spoken over his life. And the words that the voice of the Father has said is this. You are my son, my beloved. In you I am well pleased. The ultimate affirmation of his identity, a public affirmation, a public declaration of everything Jesus needs to know. Who he is and what he's for. And 40 days later, he's hungry. And maybe, just maybe, is beginning to doubt that what happened at the baptism really happened at all. Because when you're stretched thin, when you're stressed, when you're struggling, when you're broken, when you're at a point of physical exhaustion, even the promises of God can seem like they're millions of miles away, if you're the Son of God, if the conditional clause, if you're the Son of God. Satan's attacking Jesus in, at, his identity. Really, the question Satan's asking Jesus who are you? Who are you? Son of God? Look at you. You're a mess. Don't look like a son of God to me. Prove it. Show me. Make a meal. Cook something for me. Beneath this question, this attack, is a test of trust. Does Jesus really trust the Father? Does Jesus trust the Father? that The truest thing about him is what the Father has spoken over him. And beneath that level still is another question. Does, and this is the fundamental question. Does Jesus believe that God is good? There are many questions we face today as the people of God. There are many questions. This, I believe, is the fundamental question today. Is God good? The question about suffering that our culture is asking is a related question. This is the primary question. Is God good? Can he be trusted? It's a question of identity. It's a question of trust. And if Jesus Jesus doesn't trust God's verdict, he'll fall into the second temptation. If you're the son of God, tell this stone, these stones to become bread. The next part of the test is the temptation to prove his identity before God. If he doesn't trust that God is good, that what God has said about him is the truest thing about him, then he will do what so many of us do when we're stretched and tested. He'll try and prove his identity to God. Rather than receiving it from God as a gift, he'll go out into the world and, and try and prove it. In this case, he'll make some bread out of stones, which is pretty impressive. Let's go back to the baptism. Jesus, before he's done anything whatsoever, before he's done a single healing, a single act of power, before he's preached the gospel, as far as we know, he's done nothing impressive whatsoever. He's been a dutiful son. He's worked on his carpentry skills. Maybe he's built a few tables. We have no idea. But he's not done anything public. He's not declared himself to be the son of God yet. There's nothing in his divine CV. At that point, before Jesus has done anything, God says, you are my son, my beloved. In you, I'm pleased, already pleased. Before you've done anything, before you've proved anything, I'm pleased, and I want you to know that. That's the most important thing. I want God. It's like God the Father saying, I want that to be the basis of everything you do. I want you to live from that place, from that declaration, from this point onward. And 40 days later, oh, the temptation to prove just to do something because I just need to, I need to do something. I need to prove it. I need to make it real. It doesn't feel real in the wilderness, does it? This temptation lies before every human being. The question is this, when it comes to your identity and your purpose, are you going to receive what God has to say about you? Are you going to be formed and based, founded, rooted in his love, in his, de- his declaration over your life? And if not, then there's only, other one, there's only one other way to go, and that is to say that you will go out into the world and try and prove your identity to yourself and to others. And there are myriad ways of doing that. Millions and millions, as many as there are human beings created. Through your career, through your performance, through the pursuit of pleasure, through sexual exploits, through whatever money, sex, power any different way. But if you don't receive it from God, you have to go and find it yourself to establish your own identity, to bake bread. And if Satan can get Jesus at this point to doubt God's goodness, to feel that he has to earn God's love, then he will have completely derailed his mission before it even began. But there is an alternative. There is hope. Jesus says, man shall not written, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, that's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 8. It picks up a particularly powerful chapter where Israel's in the wilderness. And the full phrase from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 goes, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's like Jesus is saying to Satan, look, Satan, you've got it wrong. I don't live by the bread that you can eat. I live on the bread of my Father's declaration over me. I don't need to prove my identity by impressing you or impressing the crowds or impressing anyone else. God is already impressed. He's my father. He loves me. And because of that, I'm not going to impress you. And the reason Jesus has to get over this temptation right at the beginning because there's plenty of people that are going to distract him and be impressed by him. You know, Jesus says in John chapter six, I just read this just the other week, said, I don't accept glory from humans. (laughs) What? I read that and I I was, I don't know what the word, I was convicted, absolutely. Oh, how easy it is to, to look to glory from human beings. Like it makes a difference to me, you know, what you guys think of me. It does. I wish it didn't, but it does. It does. I mean, of course, I mean, maybe we're all like that. But, you know, for Jesus, it didn't. It didn't. Made no difference. He didn't accept glory from human beings. He'd been purified in the wilderness. For him, it was about what his father thought of him. Don't you want that? That is so much better than what you and I have got. That is so much better. There's so much more freedom there. Not to, be, not to be uncaring, but not to care what people think of you. What freedom that would be. Not to, work, not to replay situations that you've lived through in your head at the end of the day. Not to wake up and plan the conversations you're about to have. Not to be anxious about your exams, because if you fail your exams, you feel you're diminished. Not to stress at all. I mean, that kind of life has no stress in it, you know. I don't think Jesus was stressed. I don't think he was anxious. Jesus lived the true simplicity. He lived a life of true simplicity, which brings us back to where we started. Who do we let name us? Who do you let name you? God? Your Father? Who says you are his beloved son, you are his beloved daughter, and in you he's well pleased. Or the accuser who says, You've not done enough, have you? You've got to do more, you've got to be more. You're on for a two one. This is good. It could be better. And so on. What we find when we strip away the frills in our lives is that the most fulfilling life doesn't come from the abundance of possessions. It doesn't come from possessing many things. It comes from possessing one thing. And this one thing is God. From hearing his declaration over our lives and from believing it. And the way to get hold of that to gather up all the other declarations and burn them. And the biblical phrase for that, the biblical image is baptism. What happens is you go into the water wearing what you were wearing, with all your attachments, all the words that others have spoken over you, everything attached to you, and your Baptised, which means you're immersed, you're plunged, and you go under the water, and it's a symbolic act of your death. And what emerges on the other side isn't what went down into the water. And you come up, and you hear the declaration of God over your life. You receive a new identity, a new mission, and a new purpose. And mission and purpose are the same thing. This is so intense that you didn't even laugh at that. (laughs) it's baptism not a great joke anyway to be fair it's baptism so what how do we get hold of this look just this week uh, my daughter Grace was 8 years of age Um, she's awesome we've had a whole week of festivities it's like the Queen's just had a 100th birthday (laughs) except far more plastic from Smiggle. Uh, was exchanged. Anyway, just on Tuesday morning, it was Grace's birthday, and I don't know what the first time she woke up was, but it, it began with a five, that's for sure. We sent her back to a bed, and I, eventually we, we settled on something beginning with six, and uh, everyone, all six of us, not Willow the dog, she's not allowed upstairs, although it doesn't stop her most of the time, were gathered on the bed. And Gracie was right at the center of this occasion, of this moment. And we have this little tradition, which is that we make breakfast in bed for the person whose who's birthday it is. So that was Gracie, and that, that was a great idea until I went to bed later, later that night and was sort of shuffling around in, you know, crunching up cornflakes, and, oh, there's a strawberry, and, oh, it was awful. Anyway, <laughs> this is the tradition, and then we sit there, and each of us, each of us says a word. Something we want to speak of a Grace's life. Something we love about her. Something which declares who she is. And then we give gifts. And uh, the important thing is that Grace... i tell you what we gave her. The first gift, and it was the awe on her face was really amazing. Not even, even in opening it, just in receiving it. And it struck me as we were doing this. Uh, Grace has got a bedroom. More, She's got more stuff than... Then I'd even care to mention most of it is pink. Um, But she's got so much stuff. uh, And, you know, I I wrestle with that as a parent even now. But she didn't bring any of it. Didn't bring any of it with her. She showed up to this moment in confidence that she was going to get something. And she she was right. (laughs) And she came and she knelt on the bed and she sat in the middle of this. And she just came empty-handed. And we just gave her. We gave her the best we had. We said the best things we could think of to say over her, and there's so many. And we gave her these gifts, and that was what happened. And I just thought, this is a picture of how God wants it to be. A father speaking words of life over a child and giving gifts and the people of God around, just saying, yeah, this is who you are. This is what you're about. This is what it's about. This is the way that we find our identity, not in some far-off place, achieving stuff, but coming empty-handed. Amongst our brothers and sisters, with our father and our mother, the church, speaking words of life over us. This is what it means to be somebody who follows Jesus. This is the simplicity we're living for. This is what it means to have your life changed, is to hear God's voice, to listen to it directly from heaven through the word of the scripture in the, in the words of your brothers and sisters and to believe it, to believe it, to put it into practice. And that life of simplicity is also a life of surrender, surrender of control. Because here's the thing, if God's declaration counts, then Ultimately, yours doesn't. Your declaration doesn't. Come up, son, preach this message. You could do this better than I could. True story, right? If it's God's declaration about us that matters the most, then ours is second, it's just relegated way beneath that. The truest thing about you is not what you think is truest about you. The truest thing about you is the thing that God says of you. Why don't we stand?